This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, a defence of federal spending on community dog parks. The would-be federal treasurers are put to the test in the latest election debate. Also a focus on integrity as the Prime Minister claims there'd be a public autocracy under a tough Federal Integrity Commission. Constitutional law scholar Professor Anne Toomey joins me. Corruption comes in all forms and it comes in forms that aren't criminal offences but are still quite clearly wrong. We do need to have a body that is able to expose that and how COVID could reduce your IQ. Researchers reveal the long-term effects from severe cases of the disease. Avoid the virus if possible, because there's a lot of effects that we just don't know. These studies that we're starting to see suggest that there can certainly be changes in your brain and other parts of the body due to having the virus. Welcome to the program. The hopefuls to be the next federal treasurer traded barbs on rising interest rates, inflation and how best to manage the economy in a national press club debate today. The incumbent, Josh Frydenberg, and Labor's Jim Chalmers also faced questions on how to get Australia out of its mounting debt bill and how they would manage, even cut, spending. Both tried to defend accusations of pork barrelling with taxpayers' money in marginal electorates on the same day, the Prime Minister doubled down on his criticism of a National Integrity Commission. Isabel Rowe has our report. Inflation at 5%, interest rates increasing and a trillion dollars in national debt. Whoever takes government in a few weeks' time will have an extraordinary financial situation on their hands. At a National Press Club debate today, Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers opened his pitch with a scathing assessment of the budget. High and rising inflation, falling real wages, flatlining productivity, weak business investment and a budget which is absolutely heaving with rorts and waste and liberal debt. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's reply, his government brought Australia through an economic crisis largely intact. Youth unemployment, underemployment, female unemployment, headline unemployment are all lower today than under the Labor Party. Now, if you think that is luck, you are wrong. The party's treasurers were questioned about funding the NDIS, skilled migration and the public service, and why both parties have promised hundreds of thousands for things like dog parks to win over undecided voters. Is there any productivity gain to be made by spending money on dog parks. Both leaders defended some community spending as part of the job. Jim Chalmers took aim at the government's grants schemes, some of which have come under fire for focusing on marginal electorates rather than those deemed most in need. We have seen from the most wasteful government since Federation, we have seen people in ministerial offices poring over colour-coded spreadsheets, allocating money purely for political purposes. Josh Frydenberg hit back, reminding Mr Chalmers that his party too has a history of pork barrelling. Well, it's of course the Labor Party is always holier than now, even though I think the same paper uh, found that the Labor Party were providing small grants and a whole range of targeted seats. And we do know that the Labor Party, in which Jim Chalmers was a shadow finance minister ahead of the last election, also had a park and ride scheme. 
but neither was prepared to answer some big questions about what they would cut or how much they would tax to rein in inflation and bring down debt. We are prepared to have the discipline of a tax-to-GDP cap at 23.9%. They are not. We know the Labor Party will always tax more, they'll always spend more, whereas our plans are set out very clearly in the budget. Well, the, the Treasurer has just lied to you. In every way that you measure tax in the budget, this government has taxed more than the last Labor government. That's just a fact. We need to take this seriously. The budget's got a trillion dollars in debt in it with not enough to show for it. Well, uh, neither of you have actually completely answered John's question. Earlier in the day, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison was grilled about his government's stance on abortion laws after a leaked US Supreme Court draft decision signalled changes to law there. It comes a week after his Assistant Minister for Women, Amanda Stoker, spoke at an anti-abortion rally in Brisbane. There is no change to policy on that issue. I'm aware of the reports that are coming out of the United States, but that's in a, a different country. Um, so I don't see it really as, a, as an issue here in Australia. Well, people are... Well, it's a free country. It's a free country. Scott Morrison has also been unapologetic about his stance on the National Integrity Commission model operating in New South Wales, one he says is a kangaroo court and unsuitable for the federal level. In an interview with nine newspapers, he's declared Australia could become an unrecognisable public autocracy if an integrity commission was given power to investigate taxpayer spending in marginal seats. The Prime Minister has also brushed off criticism from the New South Wales Commissioner, who's labelled those calling it a kangaroo court buffoons. I stand by what I've said about why I don't think that model is a good model for the federal uh, jurisdiction. Um, he can say whatever he likes. <laughs> he can say whatever he likes. I'm not easily offended. Labor leader Anthony Albanese believes only his government would actually deliver an anti-corruption commission. I have not seen anyone from either side of politics call a legal process, it's not a court, but it's a legal process that Scott Morrison has repeatedly referred to as a kangaroo court. It's an extraordinary statement to make. Labor leader Anthony Albanese, Isabel Rowe, our reporter there. Well, the public autocracy the Prime Minister seems so alarmed by is a reference to the oversight by independent public servants of the way in which politicians spend taxpayers' money, and it is specifically part of his argument against a tough federal integrity body. But the noted Australian legal scholar and constitutional expert, Professor Anne Toomey from the University of Sydney, says the attitude is misleading, runs counter to legislated checks, and she says it undermines the system. We spoke earlier. There seems to be an attitude that if you've been elected as a member of parliament, that that means you can pretty much do what you like and that other people shouldn't tell you what to do. That itself is quite misleading. Members of parliament and ministers all have to act in the public interest and they're required to do so by law. We have requirements in the Public Governance Performance and Accountability Act that say that if a minister is going to authorise the spending of money, then it has to be for a proper purpose and that it is economical, effective, ethical and efficient. Now, who gives them advice on that? Well, it's the public servants. And if a public servant says to the minister, well, I'm sorry, minister, but this particular proposal is a complete and utter waste of money, and the minister says, but I want to go ahead with it anyway, well, a minister can do that, but they need to have a good reason for doing it. 
They can't do it if they're just doing it for the purposes of buying votes. So just saying that public servants shouldn't be able to override ministers and that's undemocratic doesn't really, I think, answer the, the underlying problem. This is the suggestion the Prime Minister is making, is that this drift to, as he says, public autocracy is a risk to democracy. What do you make of a Prime Minister, the most senior political figure in the land, putting that kind of construction on this? I mean, obviously, this is an election campaign, so I don't know that one should take some of these statements terribly seriously, but it does undermine the role of of public servants, which is an important one in terms of making sure that actions are taken in the public interest, because we all know that politicians are going to be influenced by other factors, and that's why we need other people there to determine that they do. If we take the view that politicians should be acting in the public interest, and I think most people do take that view, and if we accept that the law requires them to act in the public interest, and it does because the courts have said so many times, then I think we need to accept that in some circumstances, if politicians are behaving in a biased, inappropriate manner, if they're misspending public money for their own benefit, for the benefit of their mates, for getting themselves re-elected, if it's not spending that's in the public interest, then somebody has to be able to say, no, Minister, it's inappropriate. (laughs) Now, now given that this government and other governments have been criticised from time to time, sometimes quite sharply, for some of their spending, do you think we have a particular problem in Australia around this question of politicians appropriately or inappropriately spending public money? I think it has been a problem that has been increasing in recent years, and it's not something that's only done by one side or the other. But it has certainly been increasing in both brazenness and in terms of the amount of money involved. So the amounts involved are now astronomical, and it does have an economic effect. I mean, often politicians say, oh, well, I'm giving good facilities to the people in my electorate, so it's all okay. Not okay for two reasons. One is it's unfair. There are a lot of people in other electorates who aren't getting the same level of attention and public money isn't being directed to their needs. But it also has a huge economic cost. If you're wasting enormous amounts of money for projects that don't need to be built, then it's not government money that's being used for that. It's money that actually comes out of the pocket of every single taxpayer. So if you're worried about how much you're paying in taxes, then you should be worried about politicians that are engaging in pork barrelling. And, you know, my view, I have to say, is if someone's coming around in your electorate and offering to spend enormous amounts of money, maybe you should decide not to vote for them. I mean, might be the point at which people need to stand up and saying, actually, my vote can't be bought, because that would be probably a good outcome. And so do you think we need an integrity commission that looks at not just criminality, but pork barrelling? Uh, yes, I do. One of the arguments that's often given by politicians is, oh, well, we didn't do anything illegal. It wasn't a criminal offence. That's not really adequate because corruption comes in all forms and it comes in forms that aren't criminal offences but are still quite clearly wrong. We do need to have a body that is able to expose that and make findings about that and to teach politicians that actually this kind of behaviour is unacceptable, that members of parliament and politicians act in the public interest, particularly when they're spending public money. Professor Antoomi, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. 
And Toomey is a legal scholar and constitutional law expert at the University of Sydney. That's just part of the interview. There's more at the PM webpage. This is PM. I'm Linda Mottram. You can hear us live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead to the remote Northern Territory town of Beswick, where residents are weighing up the election promises this time round and concluding they've heard it all before. We'd just like to see our politicians keep their word. What they say will happen, not just promises they can't keep. Well, new efforts are being made to evacuate civilians from the besieged city of Mariupol after more than 150 people reached the relative safety of Zaporizhia. A convoy of buses left Mariupol on Wednesday morning, but Russian forces have renewed their shelling of the Azovstal steel plant, where soldiers and civilians have been sheltering. Four more humanitarian corridors from Mariupol and other besieged cities are planned for Wednesday as Russian forces pound eastern targets. Nell Whitehead has more. Five buses made it to the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia, carrying civilians who'd been hiding in Mariupol's last stronghold for weeks. One of them was Alina Sibylchenko. She says you can't imagine how scary it is when you sit in the shelter in a wet and damp basement which is bouncing and shaking. I saw the sun on Monday for the second time in two months. They carried with them a handful of possessions and hopes for other evacuations, even from the country's president, Vladimir Zelensky. I have been told many times that we won't be able to save anyone at Avostal, that it is impossible. And today, 156 people are in Zaporizhia. This is not a victory yet, but it's already a result. And I believe that there is a chance to save more of our people. But Russia has resumed its attacks on the Azovstal steelworks and on other cities, including Odessa and the western city of Lviv. Western intelligence suggests that Russia may try to annex the eastern Donetsk and Luhansk regions this month. Officials also say that it could formally declare war on Ukraine more than two months after its invasion on May the 9th, a victory day which commemorates Russia's defeat of the Nazis. Jacinta Carroll is a defence and security analyst. We're seeing a lot of official rhetoric building up from the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, from statements by President Putin and from Russian domestic media, um, really building the Russian people to, up to be prepared for moving from this failed so-called special military operation to a formal war. And this will likely be able to then explain to the Russian people why they are still involved in this conflict in Ukraine and why it is that they have to sacrifice more and give more. So we'll likely see a concoction of false statements from Russia to explain that they have been forced into this situation, variously by NATO, by the US um, and by Ukraine. Under Russian law, a formal declaration of war would allow its president, Vladimir Putin, to mobilise reserve forces and draft conscripts. Russia's committed something like 60 to 70 percent of the forces that it can use in that kind of conventional operation to Ukraine. And of those, the assessments are that something like a quarter to a third of those 
effectively can't operate. They've been so depleted in terms of personnel, equipment and ammunition. So they desperately need more people. So a declaration of war will enable Russia to mobilise more people into their military and send to the Ukraine theatre. The concern, though, is that this might solve a blunt numbers problem But the issue that we're seeing in Ukraine hasn't been one so much of numbers. It's the skill, the training of those personnel, essentially their will to fight and their ability to work with each other. The EU has just announced that it will phase out Russian oil imports within six months. Its sixth round of sanctions target further Russian banks, cutting them from SWIFT. And Australia has also imposed further sanctions and travel bans against members of Russia's parliament. Nell Whitehead with that report. A new study from the UK has found a bad bout of COVID-19 could affect your brain so much that you lose about 10 IQ points. The researchers from Cambridge University and Imperial College London say the effects could last more than six months and any recovery might only be gradual. Samantha Donovan has more. UK researchers studied the effects COVID had on the brain function of 46 patients who were admitted to hospital with the disease in the first half of 2020. For the six months after they'd fallen ill, their memory, attention and reasoning were all tested. Swinburne University neurobiologist, Associate Professor Jason Howitt, has been looking at the findings. And what these uh, new research is showing is that, in fact, there is cognitive deficits or that brain fog that are really showing up in people. It's important to say that this study was actually conducted before the vaccines were actually released to the world. And so the patients that they looked at here were unvaccinated. And they found basically that people who had more severe COVID-19 had more uh, cognitive deficits, so more functional problems with memory. In fact, the researchers concluded the patient's brain function had deteriorated so much, it was like they'd aged from 50 to 70 in just a few months. So that, that is quite something that's quite significant. And it suggests that the brain has been ageing due to having COVID. Um, But I need to stress that there's other things that may cause this. Just undergoing stress can lead to people having memory deficits and things like that. And obviously having severe COVID is quite a stressful environment. It's important to also say that they haven't looked long term to see if there's recovery. Okay, so the virus can definitely cause some effects or it appears to cause some effects in the brain that leads to this ageing of the brain. But it's not. we're not sure if in another year that that's actually been recovered. And they do show that some of the patients did look like they were recovering some of the function. What are some of the other physical factors with COVID that may be causing this, uh, hopefully, temporary damage to the brain? Yeah, so COVID actually you know, affects a lot of different parts of the body. And some of those are very simple things like changing your vasculature, so how blood flows around your body. And that can really have a large effect on how your brain functions and can definitely lead to some of these cognitive deficits that are reported. But it's more than likely that the virus itself, so uh, the coronavirus, is known to be a virus that can infect the brain. And in doing so, it leads to inflammation in the brain and some swelling. And that sort of has a very large effect on the brain overall. And we're still not exactly sure on how coronavirus really changes this pattern, but it certainly is thought to be one of the main leads in terms of changing this uh, the brain function overall. So as a medical researcher working in this field, what are you most interested to, to find out now about how COVID affects the brain? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually very fascinated by this because it shows an ageing brain phenotype, we say. Uh, and for me, I'm a, I'm a researcher who works on Parkinson's disease, and we know that after some of these viral triggers, it can lead to things like Parkinson's disease. And so we're really following up research to see if 
COVID-19 actually starts to subsequently lead to more Parkinson's disease cases. I really need to stress that only a very small amount of people will actually go on to have such you know, detrimental effects and the majority of people will be fine. A lot of Australians are, are pretty blasé at the moment about getting COVID. They think it's going to be just like a, a cold and they'll get over it pretty quickly. What's your advice to them? Do you think we should still be pretty careful and try and avoid getting COVID? Yes. <laughs> so uh, my own daughter actually got COVID at one stage and lots of people said to me, oh, you're going to try and make sure that the rest of the family gets it at the same time. And my very strong answer is no. Uh, I would much rather have my family fully vaccinated and then avoid the virus if possible, because there's a lot of effects that we just don't know that can be coming out in the future. And certainly these, these studies that we're starting to see suggest that there can certainly be changes in your brain and other parts of the body due to having the virus. The Cambridge University and Imperial College London research on the effect COVID has on the brain has been published in the journal eClinical Medicine. Quite sobering. Samantha Donovan there. The federal court has upheld a landmark ruling against Qantas over the unlawful dismissal early in the pandemic of nearly 2,000 ground handlers. Qantas is vowing to continue the fight against its ex-staff. It'll now head to the High Court. Industrial relations experts say the dispute has also laid bare weaknesses in Australia's industrial relations system that severely constrain workers' influence. John Daly reports. Sacked Qantas employees have today been vindicated by the federal court. The ruling that Qantas breached the Fair Work Act by outsourcing nearly 2,000 ground operations and bag handling staff was upheld. We loved working for the company. Unfortunately, it's uh, not the same company that we were sacked from. The court also turned down the Transport Workers Union's appeal for the workers to be reinstated. And Qantas instead is set to stump up penalties and compensation. Workers say it's a wistful victory. Yeah, we've had a little win, but on the other hand, a lot of us have had a lot of losses. Um, for me, personally, I've had to sell my house and move out of Sydney. This has been a 12-month fight to try to get justice. The industrial dispute began in 2020 when flights were grounded by the pandemic and Qantas cut costs by outsourcing ground handling operations at 10 airports to contractors. In June last year, the federal court initially ruled Qantas breached the Fair Work Act, finding the airline's decision to sack the workers was also influenced by a goal to stop employees from taking industrial action. Qantas workers were sacked just before their enterprise bargaining agreement expired, which meant they couldn't strike or collectively bargain. University of Sydney labour law professor Shay McChrystal says Qantas failed to prove that didn't influence the decision. In the case, the full bench very early in this judgment say that the TWU employees in this case had probably never been more industrially impotent in resisting outsourcing. Qantas took advantage of that. Shay McChrystal says the case also reveals the flaws in enterprise agreements and the current Fair Work Act. The Act, in its focus on enterprise-level agreement-making, in its removal of the right to strike during the currency of an enterprise agreement, leaves employees very vulnerable. In a statement, Qantas insists it was a lawful and commercial decision to outsource. The airline has vowed to take the legal fight to the High Court and is seeking a stay on any decisions regarding compensation and penalties until the High Court ruling. Transport Workers Union National Secretary Michael Kane has condemned the appeal. They say no. 
we will take these workers, these 1,600 traumatised families, to the High Court and continue our fight against them. Just this week, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce touted the purchase of 12 new airliners, capable of the world's longest flights from Sydney to New York and London in 2025. It only added salt to the wounds of disgruntled former staff. We see him announce $38 billion worth of new aeroplanes. $38 billion. As if the kick in the guts to these workers was not deep enough, not sharp enough. Judges refused to order Qantas to reinstate the workers, saying it would be very expensive for Qantas to rebuild its ground handling operations and because of the inevitability, those workers would get outsourced again in the future. Labor law expert Shane McChrystal says that raises some concerns. The problem then becomes that the adverse action outcome looks like a cost of doing business. Qantas gets fined, it gets the obligation to pay compensation, but in the overall run, it will potentially be financially better off as a result of the outsourcing decision. The federal court will next consider the amount of compensation for workers and penalties for Qantas. John Daly with that report. Well, the marginal seat of Lingyari covers all the remote and regional areas of the Northern Territory, and it's one that both Labor and the Coalition are counting on winning. Its biggest towns are Alice Springs and Catherine. They've traditionally favoured the country Liberal Party, so it is the votes in remote Indigenous communities that could swing the results. But in many communities, voters struggling with third world living conditions are sceptical of election time promises because they've heard them all before. Jane Barden reports. This is the kind of thing we need to address. In the remote community of Beswick, resident Anne-Marie Ryan is dismayed her family plans to spend the day gambling with cards out the back of their dilapidated house. It's actually my cousin and they live here in this one bedroom flat with all her grandchildren. And so how many people about live in this one house? I would have to say about, about eight people. There are mattresses on the floor and cockroaches run along the wall beside a baby's pram. Anne-Marie Ryan is frustrated that decades of federal election promises of more houses haven't eased the overcrowding. It's been too long waiting for houses in Beswick. We'd just like to see our politicians keep their word. What they say will happen, not just promises they can't keep. Anne-Marie's nephew Wayne Runyu and his extended family are crammed into a house across the street. Three bedroom houses and I've got third living in one house. Three people sleep on mattresses in the living room. Around the corner, families are camping in the rooms of a derelict building that used to house single men. It has no windows, power or water. Francis Lane lives in a room here with six family members, including his two-month-old son Brody. They don't have many comforts beyond some mattresses. Nothing, really, but we've got a room here. You've been waiting for a house of your own? Yeah, for a long time, four, five years. Overcrowded housing is the number one issue for this community of 500 people. The federal government committed $500 million to the NT government in 2018 for a housing plan for remote communities across the territory. Federal Labour has promised an extra $100 million in this election campaign, specifically for housing in very remote communities. The NT Labour government says Beswick will get some new houses soon, but Wayne Runyu is sceptical.
We need more jobs here and more houses. And I've been waiting for that for a long, long time. Remote residents' struggle to get jobs is another big concern here. Anne-Marie Ryan supervises women doing the federal government's work for the Dole scheme, which is meant to provide an employment pathway. But after the coalition made it voluntary last year, few are now turning up to paint and make necklaces. Both parties have promised to fix the Community Development Programme, or CDP, but neither have detailed how. When the law changed, all our young women stopped coming. And what's happening to the young people who aren't getting involved in the CDP? I am very worried about these young people. They've gone away drinking, which is not good for our young people. With the retirement of Marginal Lingiari's long-time sitting Labour member, the party's candidate, Marion Scrimger, has a fight in her hands to hold the seat. She's facing the country Liberal's Damien Ryan, who's mayor of Alice Springs. He says he'd push for more jobs in remote communities and speed up the housing programme. The delivery has not been good. Uh, the consultation has to be there. Marion Scrimger is also promising a change in approach to politics in remote Northern Territory. We've got to get a different discussion happening federally in terms of what's impacting on Aboriginal people. In a shed on the edge of Beswick, Darren Daniels is one of six men doing a Certificate to construction course. He helps supervise the community development programme here and says Beswick desperately needs more jobs. Yeah, at this stage it's very difficult. Like many here, he's sceptical about the election commitments. There's been a lot of promises from the last couple of years back. Um, we didn't see some things happen, you know, in our communities. It's 22 now and we need more things to happen, you know. CDP Supervisor Darren Daniels speaking with Jane Barden in Beswick. And that's PM for this Wednesday. I'm Linda Mottram. Thank you for listening. Sam Hawley has a new episode of ABC News Daily in the morning and there is the Australia Votes podcast too each day. PM is on the ABC Listen app and we're back again tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.